I do think that there's always going to be aspects of entrusting oneself to Christ that comes with a certain degree of embarrassment. I've just signed up for that. Do you know what uh-huh. I mean? That's a pretty minimal martyrdom to be embarrassed, <laughs> to be intellectually embarrassed. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking today in good faith with Dr. James K.A. Smith, Jamie Smith, professor of philosophy at Calvin College, now Calvin University. Yes, just recently. Congratulations yes, on thanks. that. <laughs> Thank you for coming in and speaking with me today. Oh, it's such a treat. Thank you. Dr. Smith is the award-winning author of Who's Afraid of Postmodernism, Desiring the Kingdom, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, and On the Road with St. Augustine, and How Not to Be Secular. I suppose a sidebar would be, I'd love to know how you work all the writing in with your lecturing and your academic work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, the blessings of being an academic, actually, is it's kind of your job to mm-hmm. write. So it's built into my time. It, one of the things I've done is, for me, teaching is research. So the, the classroom is the laboratory where you're trying out the ideas and the first draft, so to speak. So uh, it's worked out well. And before we get into your faith journey, yeah. because you have a background in philosophy as well, when did you decide to think? That may seem silly, we all think, <laughs> right? But, but because you do so much, to me, serious pondering upon the world and upon us as uh, believing or non-believing beings, at some point – it feels like you decided to put in the intellectual effort. Tell me about that. Yeah, and interestingly, it is inextricably linked to my spiritual journey. So this is going back way farther than you want to, but I spent my childhood and high school years deeply anti-intellectual in a way. I, I was a jock. I, uh-huh. I was an athlete. I was. Uh, I played football, hockey, baseball, and rode BMX bikes and uh, and was passionately devoted to all those things. And it actually... All uh, those classic markers for intellectual. Right, yeah. So, so it's... <laughs> and, and in a way, my intellectual capacity was latent until I became a Christian when I was 18. And very immediately kind of realized why I had a brain and had an inkling of a calling in that regard. And it was sort of, originally I thought that was going to be a call to ministry, to pastoral ministry. And then I thought it was a call to theology in particular. And as I was going through the various stages of formation and training, I realized, oh no, actually God was calling me to be a philosopher for the sake of the church and the world. And that's kind of took off from there. My wife still teases me. She's like, well, why do people care what you think? <laughs> Which, fair enough. Uh, Just because yes. you do doesn't yes. mean that we exactly. have to. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's that keeps me having to be persuasive. <laughs> Will you tell me about what, if any, faith background you had before becoming a Christian, as you say, at age 18? I grew up in southern Ontario in Canada, a couple hours west of Toronto in a, in a rural community that was I would say sort of vaguely culturally Presbyterian. So I didn't grow up an ardent atheist or anything like that. I think I probably assumed God existed. It just didn't make any difference. And it was a very blue collar experience as well. So I grew up a very, very blue. Neither of my parents had graduated high school. So I didn't grow up in an intellectual environment at all. Uh, There were no books in my house. 
And so the guys I hung around with playing football and hockey, we almost defined ourselves. It was more about sort of brawn than brains. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? And that was sort of how we we defined ourselves. That's and, part of every evil plan, though. I'm yes, the brains. Yeah, that's right. And that was a good laugh, too. <laughs> yes, <that's> right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so th- I think it was just maybe anti-intellectual is too strong, just a intellectual, just, you know, not caring about ideas. And uh, and if somebody did, we tended to sort of mock them or because uh, mm-hmm. I, I do remember when I started like getting serious about ideas in my last year, when, when I grew up in Southern Ontario, if you were going to go to university, which had always been an aspiration for me, I actually spent my high school career wanting to be an architect. So there's a weird combination of things going on here. But for me, I I imagine that as an artistic endeavor. And so I spent my high school sort of planning to go to university, but that was mostly because I knew you had to do that to make money. And so in Canada at that time, if you were going to university, you had to go to what was called grade 13. And that was the year that I actually came to faith. And as I started kind of awakening to ideas and caring about them, you could also just feel the marginalization take place from my friend group, which was – So there was sort of something at stake in yeah. doing – Now, it was also because uh, I became a Christian, which also wasn't very cool. Uh, so those things are all sort of intertwined. Do you know what sparked that interest or it was just there? No, no, it's very specific. So I started dating a girl named Deanna, who's now my wife of 30 years. (laughs) And Deanna was, we've known each other since elementary school. Her family were Christians and were very serious about that. And so when I started dating her that summer, it just brought me into the orbit of a family who didn't just vaguely say, you know, we believe in God, but were like living a Christian life and were deeply involved in their local congregation and had a sense of mission. And so when I sort of began to get enfolded into their family, they they lived on a farm and it was almost had a, their aunt and uncle lived there. It almost had like a bit of a commune sort of feel about it. And as I got sort of brought into that orbit and they just started to present the gospel to me, it made immediate sense to me. Like I, 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 there was almost no resistance. I was like, no one's ever told me this before. This sounds exactly true. And within a couple months, I basically, I signed up. Now I, I want to say one other feature of this, which is I also come from a very broken home context. So my parents were divorced when I was 11, and I've been alienated from my father ever since. I I literally don't know where my father lives. And so intellectually, I understood Christianity and the gospel when it was presented to me, and it made sense. But I also would say there was an experience of being enfolded into a community of love in Deanna's family that was speaking to me on registers I hadn't probably fully appreciated at the time. Mm. Uh, so it was a it was a very holistic sort of experience in that way. Had you ever prayed until then? And did actually praying in that new mode, was it a different experience? Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to get too weird on you, but so my... That would be hard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. That's interesting. I've never thought about that before. Did I ever pray before this? I don't have any memory of that. Mm -hmm. I don't have any memory of it. I grew up in enough, you know, Canada at this time, this is in the 19, still in the mid 80s, you know, late 80s in Canada, there would still be a kind of cultural Christianity that would be in some of the water. Like we still had religion in the public school and Mm. things like that. So I probably prayed the Lord's Prayer at different points. But 
my experience of coming to faith was Deanna's family sort of laying out this vision for me of what Christ had done for me and what that meant for my life. And I would say I was intellectually convinced just for a short while before my heart was sort of given over. And in my experiences, and this became important for me at various points in my life, I can tell you the day. It was the day after my 18th birthday, October 10th, 1988. And finally, just in the quiet of my bedroom, I just realized I wanted to give myself over to God and wanted to invite Christ into my life. And I so I climbed out of bed late one night and I kneeled down on my knees and I was leaning on my bed and praying, you know, Jesus, please forgive me, be my Lord. And I had a very, very tangible experience of Christ kneeling beside me, with me. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, That experience, I would say, has been an anchor at various points subsequently in my life in which as a philosopher, I have had to grapple with doubts and questions, which is kind of the business of philosophy. And I don't don't think it's unfaithful to do that. But there are certainly points at which I thought this can't be true. And it's probably a little weird that the philosopher goes back to the experience. But without question, that has been such a given for me that I couldn't shake it in a sense. Yeah. 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 So I feel like it was almost God set me up to be the kind of philosopher for whom experience had to be accounted for and taken seriously. It wasn't just going to be a heady project. I could imagine a lot of boyfriends fleeing when their girlfriend's parents say, let us tell you about our religion. (laughs) Yeah. Here's the interesting thing. So obviously, as you might imagine, the only reason Deanna the Christian girl is dating a punk like me is because she's kind of backslidden. Is that a phrase phrase you use sometimes? <laughs> you know, she's like, she's actually at this point, she's a, just a year and a half older than me. She's not really signed up for, for her faith at this point, which is why she starts dating a bro like me. And so what uh, does your conversion do to that? So equation? it's very interesting. When I then tell Deanna, look, I've become a Christian. She's like, I did not sign up for this. And so we had, I remember there was like five days afterwards where she's like, I, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm here for this. And then we also had a very, very powerful experience. Uh, the following Saturday is how I remember it, that she, you know, we had a sort of tearful conversation and she came back to the Lord very powerfully. And I have to tell you this funny story. So it's a late on a Saturday night. And we have this, you know, powerful spiritual experience together. And now Deanna is also recommitted to her faith. And we're going to journey. And that's been, we've grown as Christians together from kids. We call her parents. And, you know, she's in tears. And she said, can we come over? There's something really important we want to tell you. Now, if your 19-year-old daughter <laughs> calls you late on a Saturday night with her new boyfriend in tears, you're expecting some bad news, are you not? <laughs> We're going to be grandparents. <laughs> yes, exactly. So very quickly, fortunately, we got to the good news and – her parents became very for and her aunt and uncle were uh, my first disciplers, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a blessing. We talked about thinking, mm-hmm. deciding to think. Is it your experience that religious people have to choose between reason and faith? That it's not good to think too much? That's a great question. I don't think there's a universal experience in this regard. So let me, like most eggheads, I want to make it slightly more complicated. So I think it makes a difference 
for people who have grown up in faith communities. Mm-hmm. And it can go one of two ways. Some people can grow up in faith communities that are, one way to put it is, are so insular that they can almost construct a world in which they have the luxury of never having to hear alternatives. And I don't necessarily think that's a healthy thing, right? Because I'm not sure that it actually develops a robust faith that knows how to grapple with doubts and challenges. So in that sense, I think there are forms of, of religious communities, Christian communities that imagine functionally that there is some tension between faith and thinking, and they think thinking is dangerous territory, so let's sort of protect ourselves from that and just give ourselves over to the faith. I don't think that's healthy and holistic. I don't think that's what God calls us to. I think folks like me and others who've had to journey to faith have had to probably ask themselves some questions that natives to the faith haven't always had to do. Mm-hmm. However, the third category, I think, I do think, and I see this in my own children, as I'm raising children in the faith. At first, it was really unsettling for me to see them asking questions, right? And to like – They might choose wrong. Right. And and doubting some things. I thought, oh, wait, I must be failing. But then I realized, no, 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 wait. This can be part of a healthy pilgrimage because in a way you almost have to entertain and grapple with and wrestle with – uh, some alternatives to come back and own the faith as your own and not just something that's been handed down to you by your parents. Is an untested faith really faith? Um, it seems like yes. faith always has to have some component of not being objectively provable. Yeah, that's a good point, right? So that there's a trust, right? There's a, there's yes. a, there's a In trust. In fact, that's the word I translate faith to when I'm listening is trust. When and I, it's exactly what the in, – in the New Testament, the Greek word for faith is pistis, and that's what it means. It's trust. Mm. It's actually entrusting yourself to something, which means you don't have it all figured out. But it also means it, it's not allergic to or frightened from faith-seeking understanding, right? Okay, what, is, what are we committed to here? So, yeah, I think it, it's interesting the way – when you put it like that, unexamined faith is not really faith. When I teach philosophy, when I teach Introduction to Philosophy, we always read a classic work by Plato called The Apology, which is sort of narrating Socrates' vision for what philosophy is. And there's a great line, famous line in which Socrates says, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. And I teach at a Christian university and I'm inviting my students of faith to say, that's for you too. The unexamined faith is not worth believing, I think, in a way. So let's not set up the dichotomy between faith and reason, between believing and thinking. Let's see that God has also given us the gift of these critical capacities to deepen our faith and to grapple with its challenges. I went to your lecture last night here Mm. with the Wheatley Institution, for whom we're very grateful to have the chance to speak with you, Resurrecting the Imagination, Spiritual Embodiment in the Arts. And it was very inspiring for me to hear and to consider what you were saying about ways that art can inform us spiritually. But you talked about, in fact, maybe I could quote you accurately. Let me do my best here. (laughs) You're seeking art that requires soul work, Mm. Mm. not just here's my Mm. uh, 10-second Snapchat. Here's me with in the place that I am and isn't it cool I'm in this place or with this person or and these are the shoes I bought. You're talking about something that takes some time and soul work. 
which made me think, I want a faith that has more dimension than I showed up, I checked the box, I gave when the thing went past, and whatever it might be. I want a faith that requires soul work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think in my my journey, over the time of faith, right, like this is this is such an ongoing pilgrimage, I've come to a deeper and deeper appreciation of, you know, as a young convert, you're a zealot. You're 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 hungry and you're you're gobbling up everything and and because my conversion was also the sort of unleashing of intellectual capacity in a way. You know, I I'm just eating everything up and I'm I think I'm knowing everything and figuring everything out and I know what I'm supposed to know and believe and I'm dotting my eyes and crossing my Ts. And so then, you know, I'm a 24-year-old or 23-year-old who thinks, oh, all right, well, I've arrived, which is insane. (laughs) Only a 23-year-old could possibly think that. And it's then the ongoingness of the Christian faith that you realize, oh, man, there's always some new corner of my soul that God wants to do work on and uh, new illuminations and revelations of work that has to be done. And I I agree. I, I want... Now, the other thing I would say, though, is that's not just like intellectual wrangling. Do you know, like one one of the things, uh one of the dangers for Christians who have a kind of academic calling or, or intellectual vocation is you fall into the trap of assuming that Christianity is just a set of ideas, which, of course, it's not. It's the whole person and it's a communal experience. I think one of the the things I had to work through, this was probably in my late 20s, early 30s, was church is not a lecture hall. When I'm in worship, I shouldn't be there evaluating the cogency of the preacher's arguments. Do you know what I mean? Like that's not really what's going on. It's not that I have to turn my brain off, but I have to realize that God is speaking to me on all kinds of registers and is doing things in me that aren't just trying to convince me of something. And And, and through people who do what they do imperfectly. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Are there particular personal practices that over time you've arrived at or had and don't have that connect you to the divine? Yeah. um, So this this will sound really banal and uh, uh, expected, but I I would say the center of my spiritual relationship is deeply communal. And so it really, the congregation Mm -hmm. is, and and, uh, um, in my tradition, so I'm a Protestant Christian in the Reformed tradition, so heir of Calvin. And when we gather, our worship has a particular kind of script that we are are sort of rehearsing and performing. I would say that liturgical experience is sort of the anchor and center of my spiritual experience. So, And some people are, find that odd because they think when you, we're talking about the spiritual, it must be something personal and intimate and internal and private. And it's not that that's it's without that, but I actually think it's a communal centering. And so that's been significant. The other thing I would say is the Psalms are 
kind of the hymn book of the church uh, in so many different streams. And I would say I, in this phase of my life, I, I turned 50 this year, in this phase of my life, I'm starting to realize why the Psalms are something you can pray over and over and over again. And it keeps giving you language for hungers and hopes. Are there one or two that come to mind? So interestingly, this, this will sound like I'm cheating, but Psalm 1 is such a marvelous image of what it means to be in Christ is to be this tree that is rooted by the river and its roots run deep and because it's tapping into this living, moving water. And the contrast is with the unrighteous are like chaff who are so easily blown away. And and what it looks like to be the kind of person who's putting their roots down into God is sort of – and there's some really marvelous musical settings of the psalm. So music is really, really important to me. And uh, I have a dear friend uh, who's a singer-songwriter named Sandra McCracken who has – done a couple of albums of the Psalms in contemporary settings. And what's nice is that then you can almost turn the Psalms into the sonic wallpaper of your home. They're seeping into you in ways that you don't realize. And and the wonderful thing about the Psalms, of course, is that they are prayers. So insofar as Psalms get into you, what that means is you always have prayers on the ends of your lips. So And we're most likely sung. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely yeah. sung. That's right. This, this is another reason why the arts are so integral to the Christian tradition hmm. and Jewish tradition in that sense. Are there questions that you've had that you have pursued, maybe you sought inspiration for, and you've just had to say, I'm going to have to take this on faith because I don't know yet? Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So let's see how much trouble I want to get myself in here. So if I'm being really honest, Steve, I, I would say one of the things that I take on faith and have almost no clue that I've figured it out is the eschatological hope of Christ's second coming. Mm-hmm. It is that hope of Christ coming again and setting the world to rights and the arrival of kingdom come is so absolutely central and integral to what I think it is to be a Christian. But if I take a little too long to imagine the mechanics of just how that goes down, I go to dark places. Do you know what I mean? Like intellectual, I'm just like, this is crazy. This is, I just can't picture it. And so it's a non-negotiable for me. I do think that there's always going to be aspects of entrusting oneself to Christ that comes with a certain degree of embarrassment. I've just signed up for that. Do you know what I mean? Uh That's a pretty minimal martyrdom. To be embarrassed, to be intellectually embarrassed. <laughs> is there a patron saint for that? I yeah, don't think yeah, that's there a good is. question. No. He was just mildly embarrassed. Soren but... <laughs> Kierkegaard might be the example. but And so that's one thing that just – it's one of those que- – and it's exactly the kinds of questions that children ask you. The questions children ask are the hardest questions. Mm-hmm. And so that's one area – there's a really deep and serious intellectual wrangling with another question almost at the other end of the spectrum, which is what do we do with the doctrine of the fall and the entrance of sin into the world if – and I, I realize not all of us agree with that. But if, as I do, you accept that God brought the world to be by evolutionary means. So those are hard stories to put together and we're – I'm nowhere near solved that. So I, I live with those kinds of um, – tensions. And I I would also say the question of religious diversity is still just an ongoing. I try not to talk about it too much because on the one hand, I want to 
hear what God says and take seriously the specificity of claims in Jesus Christ, to which I am absolutely committed. On the other hand, I, I'm quite happy to leave a bit of mystery in terms of God's grace. And I want, like you, I think I'm, I spend a lot of time looking for commonality across religious traditions and without, I don't want it to become lowest common denominator wishy-washiness, yeah. you know, and. But if I understand what you're saying, there are people of very different denominations or source of beliefs. Yes. Who talk about God working in their lives. Yeah. And, and I, I see God working yes, in their lives. Yes. Right. And, and in fact, to imagine that he's not, I don't know what that says about God. No, that's right. I mean, we, and we know that God's spirit is present and at work in all things, right. And God's providence is, is extended broadly. So it's, it, the, the salvific question is just, and, and I'm not even saying I'm just unresolved on it. I want certain things to be true, but that doesn't mean they're true. Right. And so I, I <laughs> kind of a, live in that. That's tension. a pretty big step. Yeah, and it's – I guess I should say this. I also believe that God is at root grace and mercy and love. And so I think I'm willing to take a risk on my errors with God's grace if I am continually entrusting myself to Christ. I think that's not a bad posture for parenting, <laughs> right? I'm trusting God is going to forgive a lot of errors in this regard. And so I think one way to think of what wisdom is – this is actually Socrates too, but I, I think it's wise for, for Christians. Wisdom is also knowing what you don't know, mm -hmm. right? Wisdom is sort of knowing the limits of where we have clear and distinct perception, as Descartes put it. And I've realized the older I get in the Christian life that, that there's hazy borders, which is just the nature of being a finite creature who can't see past the horizon in a way. I wish I had another hour, but I don't. So I'd like to squeeze in a bunch of questions yeah. if I can. Sure. Not as fast as word association. Okay. But okay. <laughs> your book, On the Road with St. Augustine, yeah. from everything I read about it, is a pilgrimage about our life as a – it's not here's what he did and what he said. It's, it's yeah. using some of his thinking in our life journey. Tell me about the idea that we try and become – or feel at home here in a place that is, according to theology, not our actual home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, and that's really – so one of St. Augustine's most famous lines becomes – it's at the very beginning of his most famous work, which was called the Confessions. Augustine says – he's praying to God. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And Augustine's diagnosis of the restlessness and anxiety of the human condition is that it's because we are made for a home that we've never been to. Mm. We are all spiritual refugees. And the experience of the refugee is the experience of actually getting to a country that you've never been to and then realizing you were always meant to live there. Right to be welcomed home in that space, and Augustine thinks uh, you can probably make sense of a lot of human restlessness and anxiety and unsettledness because we actually try to camp out in the now and the here as if it was all there was, when in fact our hearts are made for another shore. Now Augustine doesn't; he's not um, 
he doesn't want to demonize creation, right? Like he doesn't think creation is a bad place. He doesn't think this is an illusion. He's not, he's not a Buddhist. He thinks that the world as we experience now is just not the world it was meant to be. It's not the fullness of what it's, it's going to be. And so we can be faithful here. We journey here. God gives us gifts here. And the, maybe – and peace. You talked about until we rest in God. Yes. Can we have part of that now? Yes. We can – and that's the difference is even when, when I'm in Christ, even when I become a Christian, I'm not magically transported home. Mm-hmm. I'm still here, but I know where home is. I've got a compass. And I know that God is journeying with me. Even though the road is still long and there are many miles to go before I sleep and there are ditches uh, that threaten on all sides and every once in a while I veer into them, but God is still with me in that journey. So it's more like a kind of sanctified patience on the way yeah. because of God's presence. I wonder if that is a peace I leave with you, my peace, yeah. not as the world given. Yes, exactly. No, that's that. a beautiful way. And and. At what Paul says, you know, a peace that passeth understanding. Mm. Um, so it's not because you have everything figured out, right? It's a deep abiding presence of God. So in academia, and again, I'm rushing with the questions mm-hmm. here to squeeze them in. We talked earlier about faith and then allowing thinking and reason. What are your interactions with people who come only from philosophy and thinking and reason and explaining the value or inviting openness to experience and yeah. even something as nebulous as feeling. Yes, yes. It's a great question. Interestingly, I would say the academy right now, since since the 80s, one of the reasons why I was interested in postmodernism, what we call postmodernism, is because postmodernism was actually a kind of critical movement that called into question the myth that people could be purely rational. Right. This myth that we are just thinking things who can be objective and, you know, just make our way in the world on the basis of reason. That's an illusion. Everybody is committed to something. Everybody is entrusting themselves to something. So what I when I have these conversations, instead, what I try to do is I dig down and say, okay, I know that you're committed to the intellectual life. But what are you entrusting yourself to under that? And then let's talk about what's the viability of what you're entrusting yourself to. And this is also where the reality of people thinking from the space of their gender or race, that itself is actually an insight to say that we are full-fledged human beings who have emotions, bodies, and so on. So there's actually a lot of opening in the academy to having these conversations right now. Reminds me of a patron saint of something, Bob Dylan. Yeah, great. A great Augustinian, I would say, by the way. You've got to serve somebody. Exactly. 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 Okay. You're going to a monastery. You're going to stay there the rest of your life. Mm. You have, there will be food. There will be water. Is my wife sunlight. there? <laughs> Why not? Okay. Yes. 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 Okay. <laughs> and you get to choose three pieces of art to put on your walls. They're the only ones you're going to see for the rest of – Wow. Okay. This is What this is a great not gonna, question. And this might change from day to day. I'm yes, not going right? to hold you to this. And, right. And, right. And okay. Call good, and see good, what you put good. on your wall. No, no, no. That's right. Uh, uh, what a wonderful – so – this is going to sound crazy, but I'm a, also a huge, passionate devotee of the decorative arts. So for me, I love art that's also integrated that we live with. So in the corner of my cell is an Ames chair, which I think is a beautiful, <laughs> gorgeous expression of being human. On the wall is El Greco's 
Revelation of St. John, which currently hangs in the Met in New York. They won't mind lending no, for this yeah, purpose. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm going to have MP3 player that is loaded with box piano concertos. No, 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 no. With the, with the cello concertos played by Yo-Yo Ma. Okay. And that's going to be the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Uh, this is quite a good life. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That sounds pretty good, actually. That could be a nice vacation. Now, here you are from a Calvinist background, though, and you walk into a church and there is not a triptych on the altar. No. Right. But art is part of your worship and part of your spiritual life. Yeah. Our tradition, I would say, is actually, I don't know if this makes much sense, but in the reform tradition right now, I would say we are also in a reform movement where we are remembering our Catholicity. So the Protestant reformers, you know, they weren't trying to burn down everything that came before. They were trying to reform it. Unfortunately, that then turned into a turn away from everything that came before. In my tradition, we are sort of recovering some ancient and medieval practices and sensibilities. And uh, in that sense, there's sort of a new life of integrating art into our worship and being much more intentional about the visuality of our worship experiences. So I'm kind of encouraged. We still haven't given birth to the painters who are doing the triptychs, but maybe we're getting closer. (laughs) Dr. James K.A. Smith has been speaking with me in good faith today. Jamie, thank you so much. Such a treat. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. That's our time for today. And thank you to our guest, Dr. James K.A. Smith, for generously sharing his stories and his faith. And thank you to the Wheatley Institution for sponsoring and arranging his visit here on the BYU campus. Find out more at wheatley.byu.edu. You can hear the full interview on our website, byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith, or on our podcast. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Our email, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Twitter, at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.